Good evening. We're very pleased to have Jessica Mosk this evening. Uh, she's a professor at New York University, uh, recently published Aristotle on the Parent Good with Oxford <coughs> University Press. And this evening she's going to talk about Plato's Appearance, Ascent, Account of Belief. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much for having me at the Aristotelian Society. Um, and the, the title of the paper is Plato's Appearance, Appearance Ascent, Account of Belief. Uh, and I'll be explaining what appearance and what ascent are. I just want to say one question I want to leave open is whether at the end of the day this is an account of belief as we understand it at all. So I'm looking at Plato's use of the Greek word doxa, usually translated as belief, and certainly standing in some ancestral relation to our word belief. But I, I don't mean to beg that question in the title. So I begin by looking at a philosopher who comes quite a bit after Plato, uh, Sextus Empiricus, who was famous as a skeptic and who took himself to be a follower of Pyrrho, so a Pyrrhonian skeptic, who has a very distinctive account of what he calls either doxa or dogma, which usually, again, translated as belief. It's an account that shares a, a lot with other Hellenistic philosophers, so the Stoics, uh, but it has its own special twists. So the basic distinction that I want to take from these skeptics, from Sextus and his ilk, is that there is a state that functions a lot like doxa, or belief, uh, but that isn't. It's a sort of subdoxastic state. And this is a state that Sextus will call going with or yielding to or involuntarily accepting appearances. So here is a very quick rundown of Hellenistic epistemology for you. This is something you'll get from, I will write it down, something you find from the Stoics as well. All mental states are going to start off with a fantasia, which is often translated as impression or appearance. So animals as well as humans are subject to these things. And it's something like a representational state. So the appearance of the chair is blue, or the appearance of the room is large. And these can have evaluative contents also, the appearance of something as to be gone for, or as frightening, and so on. So you begin with an appearance. And if you're an animal, or a young human, or, we'll see in a moment, a skeptic, that's where you stop. But if you are a rational creature, you have the power to do something to your appearance. You can scrutinize it, or you can attempt to judge it. And what you're doing when you do that is you want to see if it's true or false. And if you decide, so, am I doing that? No. OK. So if you, so you do some kind of, I'll just call it investigation. And if you decide it's true, you assent to it. the Greek word synkatathesis, you say it's true, or you say yes to it, uh, or if it's false, you reject it. I'm just going to stick with the, the positive case. Once you've assented to the thing, then you no longer merely have an appearance. You have, and it looks like with some text, an assent just is, a doxa. So often translated as belief. And then on the, on the Stoic view, uh, some doxi are emotions, so if I merely have an appearance of something is frightening, I'm not yet afraid, but once I assent to it, I am. So what a doxa is, is you've begun with an appearance and you actively assent to it, and then you have a belief. Um, the skeptic view is the one that I want to look at because according to the skeptics, you can get quite far without going through this assent stage. Right? Skeptics are people who think that we just don't know enough to tell if our appearances are true or not. They started by investigating and trying to judge which are true and false, and then they gave up. They suspended judgment. But that doesn't render them inactive. So skeptics say in various texts, and we'll look at some in a moment, that they live adoxastos. They live without belief. But they say that doesn't render us idle or inactive because we just follow the appearances. So we can look at a couple of these. Um, passage one, we don't overthrow, so we don't reject or, or ignore, the pathos-producing fantasia. 
which leads us involuntarily toward assent. What does that mean? If something appears very frightening, it's going to stir up a feeling of fear, and you're going to move away from it, even though you're a skeptic. So you're not going to, as their, as their detractors accuse them of, if you really stuck to your guns, you're not going to just stand there as a boulder rolls towards you. It looks scary. It looks dangerous. And you're going to feel a pathos, and you're going to go along with that. You're not going to overturn that. Why don't you count as having a doxa? Well, we just, passage two, adhere to what appears living without doxa. What aren't they doing? What aren't they adding to the appearance? That someone who not only sees this frightening thing and feels some kind of, some kind of affection, some kind of maybe proto-emotion, and acts on it. What is someone adding if they feel doxa? Well, passage three, here they call it dogma, assent to something non-evident. So the appearance, everything's on the surface, but somehow to have the belief that the thing is dangerous or frightening, in my example, would be adding something non-evident, something that's not in the appearance. What is that? Well, a few different ways of spelling it out. If you're a dogmatizer, you don't just sort of go with the appearance of the thing. You posit it as, I translated, existing, huparkan, really being there, really obtaining. Or another way to put it is, passage five, that skeptics, they don't assert they don't affirm or deny. What does that mean? Well, maybe that's spelled out most clearly in six. We don't judge our impressions and ascertain which are true and which are false. Uh, I'll come back to all these, but a further spelling out in seven. The skeptic does not form a doxa that anything is good or bad in its nature. So they don't deny that it appears bad when the boulder is tumbling towards you. They just don't say it's bad in its nature. He will not be able to say how any of the underlying things is in its nature. So I tried to sum up all of these, these claims that they make about what they do and what they don't do, which will give us the difference between merely going with an appearance and actually forming a doxa, as follows. This, the skeptics say they stick with appearance reception. I'm, that's my term, uh, but something like yielding to fantasia. Uh, it, it's passive. You can speak of accepting the appearance, and they do that in a few places. We saw that in passage one, but it's not an active one. It's even, according to, passive, to passage one, not voluntary. There's no boulesis there. Um, so you might think of something like a reflex. Uh, the skeptic will wince if you put something near his eyes, even if he doesn't think there's really something there or that thing is really a threat. Uh, and then, very importantly, this thing is functionally similar. This state that you can be in is functionally similar to doxa. This is what they insist to their detractors. Yes, even though I have the affective responses I would if I had a doxa, even though I seem to you know, feel something that looks like fear or that feels like fear, even though I have the same behavioral responses, I move away when the thing comes towards me. And even probably some inferential consequences. I might even reason out how best to avoid the thing. Even though I'm doing all those things, I'm not actually in a doxastic state. Why not? Well, summing up everything we saw that they claim they don't have, were I in doxa, I would have to have given active rather than passive assent to the appearance of X as F, say the boulder as dangerous. Uh, and that would be equivalent to an affirmation of the appearance as true not merely looks scary, but is scary. Or another way to put it, I would have to posit it as really being, huparkan, really existing that way, or as being that way in its nature. So we get this distinction between these two stages, full-blown doxa and a functionally similar but subdoxastic state. And one thing that I, I just want to add, um, because I think it can be, for those of us who think about belief now and read modern discussions of belief and states that are similar but fall short of it, I want to make clear what this contrast isn't. It's not a contrast between having high credence in something and lower credence. Right? It's not that the appearance, it seems likely to me that the thing is dangerous, but now that I'm sure it's dangerous, I believe it. Right? It's not, that's just orthogonal. Uh, it's also, I think very importantly, 
not a distinction between merely entertaining an appearance and committing to it. Right? That's what the skeptic says, they're not holding the appearances at arm's length. Right? They, it's in this state, this investigation state, that I say, hmm, is it really as it appears? And then I'm merely entertaining or having thoughts about it. In this kind of passive state, I'm, I'm going with it. I'm accepting it. I'm just not actively doing so. In other words, I'm not accepting it as true. Okay. So that's this, this skeptic view, this distinction between two states. It's one, I, I won't talk about it much, but it's one that I think has a modern, um, well, it has some descendants that are around now. So the most prominent, I think, is Tamar Gendler's view that there's a state that's a lot like belief, but isn't belief. She calls it a leaf uh, to separate it. But it has similar behavioral consequences, similar affective consequences, but it isn't a belief. Why not? Well, because beliefs, as she puts it, following a lot of people, aim at the truth. So to believe something is to believe it as true in a way that makes you sensitive to counter evidence or counter arguments, and that these kinds of states, this appearance reception state, is not sensitive. Okay. Now, that's a bit about the, the descendants of the view. What I want to do today is show that it has an ancestor in Plato. And I think this has not been recognized. Uh, Sextus saw it in Aristotle, and a lot of people who sort of stoicized Aristotle saw it in Aristotle too. That Aristotle has something called fantasia, he has something called doxa, and maybe he has something called ascent, maybe that's hoopalapsis, maybe that's pistis. And I think actually that's a good way to read Aristotle. I think there's a lot to be gotten out of that. Um, but I don't think it's been recognized in Plato, and I think we should recognize it in Plato, and that for two reasons. One, I like to give credit where credit's due, and Plato often doesn't get credit for things that Aristotle gets credit for. Uh, but the other reason, more constructively, is I think Plato's views of doxa, which is an important category for him, they've gotten a fair amount of attention as doxa is contrasted with the superior state, episteme. But I think we can often get the impression that his view of doxa is kind of a mess, uh, inconsistent across dialogues, and not particularly philosophically well-motivated. And for example, there seems to be the implication that doxa is tied to perceptibles, that if you have some kind of mental state that's not about perceptibles, it count, can't count as a doxa. And this has just seemed bizarre to people. They wanted to deny it. So that's one example of a way in which Plato's view of doxa has seemed like a mess. Here's another way. In the Republic, he very strongly implies that the non-rational parts of the soul, the appetitive and spirited parts, have doxi. In later dialogues, the Timaeus, he denies it. And so what's he done? You know, has he changed his view of these parts of the soul? Or has he just changed his view of doxa? Did he even really have a view about doxa before? So he seemed inconsistent, sloppy, and eccentric. And I want to show that we can recognize him as working towards or developing this appearance ascent account. And that's going to make a lot more sense of what he's done. That said, I want to also admit all the interpretations of Plato I'm going to give are contentious and much contested, and I'm not going to have time to argue against all the rival interpretations I've given. So my hope in a talk this size is just to say, here's an attractive interpretation of the Republic, here's an attractive interpretation of the Theotetus, and they fit together in an attractive way, I hope. All right. Um, before I get started on that, there's some important uh, terminological things to get out of the way. Part of the reason Plato's view has seemed confusing, and also I think part of the reason that this, this aspect of it hasn't been recognized is terminological. So if you talk about fantasia in Plato, people say, yeah, that's a word that shows up about twice. Um, and the clearest use is in the sophist, where he defines fantasia as a mixture of doxa and perception, eisthesis. So that's not the view I'm looking at here, right? In my, the view I'm looking at, fantasia precedes doxa and can exist without it. On that view, fantasia is the name for a kind of doxa, a perceptual one. So I just want to say, I want to set that aside. That's not the use. When I say that I see the antecedents of this view in Plato, I don't mean in his use of the term fantasia. Um, the other thing is this inconsistency about doxa. Do the lower parts have it or don't they? And I, what I want to say is that in the Republic, doxa is a broader category. So in the Republic, doxa is going to include what the skeptics will call fantasia. 
And then he's later going to narrow the usage. So like the skeptics, merely having fantasia doesn't count. And that's a terminological shift. If I have time, I'll make some speculations about why that terminology shifts. Um, but since there's terminological mayhem, I made a handy chart. Um, so towards the bottom of your first page, passive appearance reception on the one hand and assent on the other. So for the Stoics and skeptics, we call the passive appearance reception merely yielding to or going with or involuntarily accepting a fantasia. And the state you have when you've assented is doxa or dogma. In the Republic, I want to show the first state is called ekasia, one species of doxa, usually translated as imagination or imaging. And the state that corresponds to doxa in the Hellenistic people is pistis, often translated as conviction and sometimes as belief. Um, and then the other dialogue I'll look at in detail is the theotetis, where passive appearance reception is eisthesis. He also mentions fantasia a few times, and I think interchangeably there with eisthesis. And then the ascent phase is called doxa. Uh, if you looked at the version of this talk, this paper that's on the website, you would see the sophist there also. And I have now come to realize and been convinced that it does not fit neatly into my picture at all. Um, I'd be very interested to see if people have suggestions about what to do about that. But I'm not making any claims right now about how the sophist fits in. Okay. So I'm now at, we've already talked about A-leaf. So A-leaf, Gendler's A-leaf, or sometimes people talk about, oh, um, Andy Egan has the state bimaginations that are crossed between belief and imagination when you're in a delusion and so on. Those would all be passive appearance reception. Belief in the modern sense of aiming at the truth would go under assent. Okay. So I am now at Doxa in later Plato. So there is, I think, some fairly explicit evidence that Plato held a version of this appearance assent account in some later dialogues. So I'm just going to read most of this passage from the Philebus. Um, so doxa comes from memory and perception. And this looks, by the way, to be a very general account of doxa. He's early, rather than just a few important kinds of doxi, he's earlier defined memory as the preservation of perception. So it looks as if he's saying doxa always begins with some kind of perceptual episode. Um, and then he gives an example. And one can certainly say, look, this is merely an example. It's maybe not even meant as a paradigm of doxa formation. It's just an example of doxa formation. It's the one he gives. It often happens to someone who sees things not at all clearly. He wants to judge those things he's seeing. Crenane, the same word that the skeptics and Stoics will use for this, what you're aiming at in this investigation. Um, and might he not question himself? So then you get this kind of inner dialogue, what is it that appears to be standing near that rock? And after having seen like, things like that appearing, he might, as if answering his question, say, it's a person. And that would be correct. Or he'd say, it's a statue. And that would be false. If someone else were there, he'd say it out loud. And then this is actually the first mention of doxa. So apparently, that saying it to himself counted as a doxa. Otherwise, you become logos. I'm missing an S there. Logos. The soul at these times seems like a book. Memory and perceptions and other things write logoi in our souls. And when they write true things, true doxa and true logoi arise in us. And I think we get a very similar, shorter version. I'll read out the Theotetus passage. I'll skip over the sophist one for now, but it's similar. In the Theotetus, thinking is dialoguing again with yourself. That we're dialoguing, dialegasti, that's the one you know from what Socrates does with his interlocutors. Earlier in the Theotetus, he said to Theotetus, this is what we're doing. I ask you questions. I question your, your views. And you have to come up with answers. And it, it affirms and denies. And whenever it determines something and affirms the same thing and does not disagree, that's its doxa. So I call believing saying, affirmation. And then we get a very similar view from the sophist. So like the Hellenistic view, like the skeptic and stoic view, you have a process of doxa formation where you begin with an appearance, maybe even always with a perceptual appearance. And that's something we can discuss later. Um, I th on most readings, the skeptics and stoics are going to be more liberal, liberal than that. There's intellectual appearances too. But the example we get here is a perceptual appearance. Um, you investigate it. You go through some process of asking questions and answering them. And when you actively affirm that things are as they appear, or you actively deny 
that there is they appear only then do you have a doxa. Okay, so this looks like a weird account of doxa for several reasons. Uh, the most prominent probably is that we probably tend to think of belief formation as more automatic, more passive. Right, sometimes I get my beliefs this way, but often we might think I just have beliefs. They are just simply caused by perception or whatever other way they come about. Um, so I see two, two responses here. One is, look, actually, I should say the general thing. I think that Plato writes it this way, that the main point he wants to get at is that belief depends on this active affirmation, this active assent. Right? So you don't count as having a belief if you have a kind of passive acceptance. We'll see why that's important when we look at the Republic, where I think he does explore the notion of passive acceptance. So doxa depends, as in the Hellenistic, these later philosophers, on actively affirming something. Why then does he put in this stuff about asking yourself questions and answering them? Here I think there are two ways to go, and I'm not sure which way to go. One is, look, he just wants to bring out about a clear case. So the clearest way to articulate this notion of affirmation, which is a new notion in philosophy, is, for him, I mean, is to present it as the answer to a question. You want to know, what does it mean to affirm something? Well, it's like someone asked you a question, is it? And you said, yes, it is, right? Another thought is maybe he thinks this kind of affirmation only does arise in answer to questioning, right? That if you haven't gone through, so think about the skeptics. If I haven't thought to question the appearance, then I can't count as having actively accepted it. I'm merely passively yielding. And if that's right, then doxi are going to be pretty rare, right? During most of the day, you just go with how things appear. You don't actively assent to things. And maybe for an interesting modern parallel, Tamar Gendler in her work on A-Leaf says she thinks that most of our actions are based on kind of perfectly fine A-Leafs rather than B-Leafs. I don't question how things are. I don't actively affirm. I'm not aiming at the true in some conscious way. I'm just happily going about things without all that mental effort. Okay, so that's later Plato. What I want to show now is that we see the roots of this view in the Republic. And it's hard to see in the Republic for a few reasons, but I think the main reason is if you ask what is, what's Plato's real concern with doxa in the Republic, the answer that would seem obvious is, well, it's, it's an objects-driven account. So it's not about what mental processes go on, it's about what the objects are. So as I say at the beginning of section three, in the Republic, it looks like mental states in general are defined by their objects. He gives an analogy with sight is set over, uh-oh, uh gotta get that one wrong. Sight is set over colors and hearing is set over sounds. And likewise, he says, doxa is set over the perceptible world and episteme, knowledge or understanding is set over intelligibles. So what it is to be a doxa, is somehow essentially tied up with being an attitude towards perceptibles. Furthermore, we find out in the divided line passage, within the category of doxa, there are two subspecies or species. Um, and he defines them again in terms of their objects. So if you have the divided line in your mind, way at the bottom are images and reflections. And there's a special mental state that's set over those. Ekasia, sometimes translated as imaging or imagination. I think imagination is going to be misleading because it sounds too active for what I think this is, but the, it comes from the root and akon image. Um, I'm just going to transliterate it. And then if you go one step up, so you had the shadow of a tree, and when you were, your mind was set over the shadow, you were in Ekasia. Now you look at the actual tree, you're in <coughs> this other state, Pistis. And here he's using a word that has connotations of conviction, if I would say, I want you to trust me, I would use a verb from pistis. So some kind of faith or commitment or trust. Later on, it'll show up as, as faith um, in the religious sense. And then once you start to question whether the perceptible world is the final answer to things at all, then you've moved beyond the realm of doxa. Then you're dianoia and noesis. I won't talk about those today. Um, OK, but as a theory of doxa, this might look pretty weak. And as I mentioned already, it seems strange to confine it to perceptibles. Why can't I have, surely I can be in states that fall short of knowledge about math, for example. Why not call that a doxa? Um, looks like I could in the Mino. The slave had true doxa about an answer to a math problem, but not knowledge. And then what I want to focus on a lot is 
I think this looks on the face of it like a really unmotivated distinction between acacia and pistis. So I'm looking at the reflection of the chair leg on the floor and then I raise my eyes half an inch to the chair leg. It seems very weak to say that that's a, I'm now in a different mental state, right? Especially if you're Plato who thinks that the chair leg isn't really ultimately real either, only the forms are ultimately real. So why, why say that there are these two distinct states? And I think one answer people have given is, well, what he's really interested in is what happens higher on the line, the difference between thought, dianoia, and understanding, noesis. And he wants a kind of an analogy for those. Or he wants an analogy for the whole divided line. So the relation of acacia to pistis is going to be the same as, or parallel to, analogous to the relation between doxa as a whole and episteme as a whole. So I think in general, the thought is, what's going on down here doesn't, there's not a lot going on down there. That's one problem. Another problem is if, like me and like many people, you think that when we get to the cave allegory, we're doing the same thing as we did on the line. So the prisoners who look at shadows at the bottom of the cave are in acacia, and those who've been released and can turn around to look at the statues and the fire are in pistis. Not everyone accepts that, but I, I'm going to say I think it's the straightforward reading, and we need a reason not to accept it. If you accept that, then there's a further mystery, which is that Plato says that the, it's the prisoners, the ones who are looking at shadows, who are like us. Even if you don't accept the parallelism, why are people who look at shadows like us? So surely we spend most of our time not looking at shadows, but looking at you know actual trees and things like that. So again, we think I, this is a weird theory. It's underdescribed, and it seems to get things wrong. OK, so I think if we look later in the Republic, we find out we get a much better view of what's going on, and we understand that there really is an epistemological difference that corresponds to this ontological difference. So having my mind set over a shadow is going to wind up being this kind of passive appearance state. Working hard to get my mind set over the thing itself, successfully or not, that's going to take some mental effort. That's going to take some kind of active ascent. And that's going to be a higher state. OK, so what's the evidence for that? in the Republic. Um, well, first of all, actually, I think I'm going to skip passage 11. I'll come back to that later. Um, that's from the cave allegory. So let's look at passage 12. This is in book 10. And what's happening here is Plato wants to show that there's two parts of the soul. Uh, one of them is rational. So like we heard about before in book four, one of them or several of them are non-rational. And it's the non-rational part that are affected by images. <coughs> And therefore, imitative poetry is dangerous, and it nurtures a bad part of the soul. So to establish this, he has to establish non-rational part of the soul affected by images. How does he do that? He gives us an argument about the kind of cognitive conflict that you're in when you experience an optical illusion. And I'm actually not going to read the whole passage out. I'll, I'll sum up the important parts which I've underlined. The basic, so there's a whole problem in here that I'm, isn't relevant to my talk about what part of the soul is doing what. Um, yeah, it is kind of relevant. All right, let me, let me sum up what I think the right reading is here. Uh, I'm subject to some kind of an illusion. So there is the person at the, at the back of the room used to be standing up here, and she looked pretty big, and then she walked away, and now she looks small. Um, so this something appears to me through sight. And yet, I'm also able to calculate legismos, something I can engage in. I'm able to measure. and I figure out that she's the same size as she was before. Right? So we might want to describe this by saying, yeah, this is a kind of illusion case. I have a belief about how things are, and that conflicts with my perceptual appearance. Plato wants to apparently go further. He wants to say, I have two opposing doxi. So even though I believe or know that she's the same size, it, not, it doesn't merely appear to me that she's smaller. He also wants to say, I believe that she's smaller. Now, since this is the principle of opposites argument, those of you who know Republic 4 will be familiar from the drinker, thirsty guy who doesn't wish to drink. Same thing can undergo opposites in the same part of itself. So there must be sort of two believing subjects in me. One that trusts in measurement and calculation. That's the best part of my soul. That's the one that has the doxa, that she's the same size. But there's another one that went with how things appear. And that one has the doxa that she's smaller. 
Okay. <coughs> so this looks to us, I think, like a problematic argument. Why say that there are two doxi here? Why say that the thing, that the mental state based on the appearance, or the mental state that just sort of maybe consists in even having the appearance, why call that a doxa? And I want to say, well, Plato's given us some reason to think it's a doxa. This looks like a cassia. And I want to show that the distinction between these two doxa, two doxi, is a distinction between a cassia and pistis. Um, now, you remember a cassia and pistis were defined earlier by their objects, being set over what is versus what appears. And I think exactly the same thing is going on in this passage. So you can kind of get that intuitively. There's the appearance of her as smaller. That's one thing I'm responding to. And then there's also my thought about how she really is. She really is the same size. Now, actually, Plato has given us precisely that distinction earlier in Book 10. Uh, he's been talking about painters. And he wants to show that they are, as imitators, it's going to be like poets also, they respond to how things appear rather than how things are. We get this in passage 13. Painters imitate visible objects like beds. Do they imitate them as they are or as they appear? And the answer turns out to be as they appear. And we get this nice argument that a bed looks different from different angles, you know, foreshortening and perspective. It doesn't differ at all from itself. It isn't different, but it appears different. And the painter copies the appearance. So, what I want to point out here is there's this notion of things as they are that isn't Plato's full-blown notion of reality, right? He's not saying painters imitate the form of the bed. They don't. They just imitate the bed or the table as it is, where that means they're making a claim about the na sorry, they're, what they're not making a claim about, what it would take to do to be at the second level rather than the third, is say something like, this thing really is rectangular, or this side really is the same length as that side, even though it appears different. So just like what you do when you calculate in the illusion passage. So there's that distinction. Now, in acacia, you're limited to, or you don't set your mind over anything further than how things appear. I think what this bent stick passage or distant object passage shows us is that the difference between having your mind set over appearances and having your mind set over things that are or ordinary objects isn't like the difference between looking down at the shadow and then raising my eyes an inch to the thing itself. It takes mental effort. So in the illusion case, I need to measure, I need to calculate. I, or even in the, the case of looking at the bed from different angles, it takes some thought to realize, yeah, the thing itself doesn't really differ. Okay. So in the Republic, we are getting these two different states. There's passive appearance reception, what the Stoics will call, or skeptics will call, yielding to fantasia. I think Plato is here calling acasia. There's doing some investigating, using some mental effort, and in the end, affirming, yep, that's how it really is, or no, it's really different. And that is going to count here as pistis. Um, why does Plato want to call these both doxi in the Republic? Well, one thought is, that's just one way to use the word. Doxa is something that doke, that seems to me. And maybe that's a fine way to do it. And I put in one more passage from Sextus, the skeptic, up at the top of page three where although he mostly says we skeptics have no dogmata, we don't have any truck with dogma, here he says, well, of course, there's a sense of dogma in which we do. And look at the way he distinguishes. We say the skeptic doesn't dogmatize, not in the sense of dogma in which some say, speaking quite generally, a dogma consists in acquiescing to a thing. For the skeptic does assent to such pathemata, feelings which necessarily result when things appear to him in certain ways. He would not, for example, when he's heated or chilled, say, I believe I am not heated or chilled. So I think this is very similar to what we saw in passage one. We don't overthrow the passive producing impression, we involuntarily assent. And he said, fine, if you want to call that a dogma, go ahead and do that. So there's an idea, there is a kind of doxa, if you want to call it that, which is available to the skeptic. And in the Republic, I think Plato's thought is, yeah, that's available to the lower part of the soul. The lower part of the soul can have what we would call representations or appearances. Things can seem certain ways to it. And that's the basis for its affective states and its motivational states. What it can't do, since it has no power of, well, it lacks logismos, calculation or reasoning. It can't have this inner dialogue with itself. It can't ask questions. It can't question the appearances. 
It can't, therefore, answer its questions. It can't assent. And that's why it can never have views about how things really are. Okay. That's the end of my thoughts about the Republic for now. And I want to, um, to move on to talk about the Theotetus. And here's where I want to say this is going to go fast. And I'm going to talk about one of, this is always hard to say, I think one of the most debated passages in Plato. Uh, there's many. Um, and really all I'm going to be able to do here is say, here's a case for one reading that's out there in the literature. I'm not going to give an exhaustive um, defense of it. But I think having seen that in the background in the Republic, we can move on. Sorry, I should say one more thing before I leave the Republic. I said one of the mysteries of the Republic is why is doxa confined to perceptibles? If you accept this account of perception, there's a simple answer. To have a doxa is either to passively accept an appearance or to affirm that things really are as they appear. So anything that involves moving beyond appearances is no longer going to count as doxa. We saw the kind of legismos that you go through, the kind of calculation you go through when you're figuring out that, an, that things are as they appear. Yep, the stick really is bent, or that person really is small, or when you're figuring out that they're different. Um, but that's, you start off with an appearance. X appears to be F. And then you say, is X really F? And if your answer is yes or no, and that's a firm answer, a kind of conviction, an acceptance, then you stuck in that sense, you're stuck in the realm of appearance. So you're stuck in the realm of perceptual things. You're just saying, you know, the table really is rectangular, even though it appears this way. Then what happens if you instead say, well, is the table really rectangular? You know, compared to the perfect rectangle, it isn't. Or, you know, at a different time, it wasn't rectangular. Or you have those kind of thoughts that should be familiar from the famous finger passage in Republic 7. Right? This finger is big compared to this one, but small compared to that one. So what is the nature of the small itself? Once you have those thoughts, then he says you're thinking about intelligibles. So I'm no longer interested in the table or the finger or the person at all. I'm interested in these kind of, we might say, concepts. Plato's going to say the forms of smallness and so on. That's when you've left the realm of doxa. So I want to say one thing that this view, this interpretation yields is a kind of non-arbitrary explanation of why he draws that line where he does. OK, now on to the Theotetus. Um, we looked at the Theotetus a bit before. If you turn back to passage 9, and we saw evidence for this account of doxa. Passage 9 from the Theotetus calls doxa an affirmation or a saying of something. And it describes it as the end of a process of asking questions and answering them. It notably doesn't say what we get from the Philebus, that this starts with a perceptual appearance. It doesn't say what it starts from. So it could start from anything. Um, but we still get the idea of doxa as active assent. What I want to show now is that stuff earlier in the dialogue has given us reason to think, yeah, it starts again with some kind of perceptual appearance or some kind of appearance. And that's the thing you question. And that's the thing you wind up either affirming or denying. Um, so. What's going on in the Theotetus? Well, we start off looking for a definition of episteme, knowledge. And Socrates' interlocutor Theotetus says, I've got an answer. Knowledge is eisthesis, perception. And what Socrates does to this definition is says, let's flesh it out. Let's see what this entails. And he winds up refuting it. So what he says it entails is basically a kind of radical subjectivism. So if knowledge is perception, then things are for each person as they appear to be. That's what he calls Protagoras' doctrine. Man is the measure of all things. And actually, maybe we can just get a preview of this by skipping to passage 15. I'll go back. But um, sometimes when the same wind blows, one of us is chilled, the other not. So maybe I'm hot-blooded or I have a fever, so I don't feel cold. Um, and he wants to say that if knowledge is perception, in other words, if perception is all there is to knowledge, if there's nothing to be known other than what you can get through perception, then we should just say there isn't any fact of the matter about how the wind is in itself. There's no perceiver-independent truth. Um, so shouldn't we be persuaded by Protagoras that the wind is cold for you and is hot for me? In matters of hot things and all things like that, as each person perceives them, so they are for that person. 
Perception, therefore, is always of what is. And he says that befits knowledge. Knowledge is of reality, and perception is always true. So what Plato or what Socrates does to this thesis that perception is knowledge is he shows that it entails, or argues that it entails, this kind of radical subjectivism and relativism and lack of perceiver-independent truths. Okay. He sticks with this view, fleshing it out for a large section of the dialogue, and then launches a bunch of refutations. And the refutation that winds up being treated as decisive, and they move on and say, we need a new theory of knowledge, uh, is this very difficult and, and, like I said, much discussed passage, uh, 184 to 7. And I'm giving you, I think, a non-controversial summary, I hope. This is, I'm trying to be neutral at this point. So three points. Um, he starts off by distinguishing between what we might call special and common objects of the senses, something that would be important to Aristotle. So special objects are going to be like colors. You can only access them through sight. Sound, you can only access through hearing. But all other kinds of things uh, that, that aren't confined to one sense, he claims that they're investigated not through the senses at all, but rather by the soul itself by itself. So if I'm trying to figure out, presumably, he doesn't mention size. Well, actually, let's see what the, the next ones are. Number shows up in there. Um, if I'm trying to figure out if there are two things or one thing, I'm not actually exercising perception. I'm doing some other activity that the soul does without the body. That's the force of by itself there. Um, and he calls that doxadzane, forming a doxa. Okay. And then he says, well, this class of commons, so all these commons, these things that aren't confined to one sense, are actually beyond the reach of perception. They're only in the reach of, well, maybe doxa, maybe on one reading only episteme, but at least doxa gets you part of the way there. And this class includes sameness, difference, similarity, dissimilarity, number, and then a bunch of value terms show up, fine, good, beneficial. And then very crucially, he says, because it attaches to everything, also being. So being winds up not being an object of perception. Since perception has no access to being, it has no access to truth, and therefore it can't be episteme. So precisely refuting what we saw at the end of passage 15, the view attributed to Theotetus, perception is not of what is, and therefore it's not true. It can never really be true. Okay, so this is obviously a very important argument, but what is he saying? And in particular, people have argued a lot about what it means to say that being is beyond the realm of perception. What I want to show is that there is at least a good way to read this where we're getting precisely the same distinction. Perception just goes with how things appears, and it makes no assertions at all about how things really are. Now, this is a view that's out there in the literature. It's a minority view. Um, John Cooper had argued for it and said, well, there's some problems with it. I found a really compelling defense in an Estonian journal, which really shows you the power of the internet, because I don't think I would have come upon that otherwise. It was someone else was citing an article I was looking for uh, by this guy, Thomas Lott, and he really carefully goes through uh, and, and looks for, you know, argues, I think, pretty compellingly against other views. Just so you know what other views are, traditionally it was thought that the idea is that perception can't access the forms. But of course, doxa shouldn't be able to access the forms either, so that's a bit problematic. Uh, and maybe also question begging, you might have to believe that there are forms in order to be moved by the argument. And then very influential view originated by Miles Burnett, that being here means something like the copula. So perception can never even say something is hot, because to say that the fire or the wind is hot is to, to form a predication, a judgment. So perception is really just limited to things like hot, and it can't go any further than that. Um, so I want to go with this objective truth view. The claim is that perception doesn't make claims about how things objectively are. And I think the, a big reason to accept this view is, actually, maybe before I take you through the argument, I should just make sure it's clear how this would fit into my big picture. The big picture would be, in perception, perception says just the way that the skeptic says the wind is hot. Look up at Sextus up here. Actually, this is, I think Sextus expresses himself poorly here. He says, I, I would not say I believe I am not heated. But maybe a more straightforward way is if the wind feels hot, the, the skeptic might say, hmm, hot. Um, and we'll react accordingly by taking off a layer or something like that, right? So perception can get you that far. However, to add the idea that the wind is really hot or is hot in its nature, 
or is hot in and of itself, or to posit its hotness as existing. That's not perception's job. Perception can't do that because that's to go beyond the resources of perception and to talk about these common qualities. Likewise, perception can't say it's the same wind, which we saw in passage 15. The same wind is hot for me and cold for you. Sameness is one of these commons. So when you say it's the same wind, you're going beyond perception. You're using doxa. So we have the same notion here. In perception, you just go with how things appear. But once you start asserting anything about how things really are, you're no longer in the realm of, of passive appearance reception. You're doing active doxadzing, active doxa stuff. OK. Um, so that's the big picture that I want to get at. I think the biggest argument for that is it makes a great refutation of Protagoras. So I think the, the Bernier uh, way of understanding this is kind of overkill in the sense that if perception can't make any judgments, then all of the previous refutations or arguments against Protagoras's view yielded way too much to the opponent. Right? So they become maybe interesting exercises, but at the end of the day, perception can't even say the wind is hot. So why bother with all these other arguments? Um, this view, and I think this was an attraction of the, the forms view that people used to have, this view says, look, Protagoras, you are radically subjectivist, you're radically relativist, um, and this is a corrective to you. So what I'm saying is perception can't be knowledge because, they're, because that leaves out the idea of objective truth. Now that might just sound question begging, right? Protagoras can say, sorry, I tried to explain to you there is no objective truth. But the subtlety of it is it winds up being a kind of self-refutation argument. Look back at passage 15 again. If you're a Protagorean, you have to say the same wind is doing these things. So you are making an assertion. Or you have to say it's a different wind, which is how I'll wind up going. This wind just exists for you, and that wind just exists for me. Or if Socrates tastes the wine tastes sweet to him when he's healthy and bitter when he's ill, you have to say Socrates is a different person. So in order to defend your view, you'll have to make assertions about these comments. Furthermore, your view is this very typical dogmatic view of the kind that the skeptics say we don't want any truck with. You're making assertions about how things are. Look at the end of passage 15. As each person perceives things, so they are for that person. <coughs> Perception is of what is. So Protagoras is an ontologist. And Plato spells that out a lot in the Theotetus by going on to say, actually, you're committed to this crazy Heraclitean ontology where everything is becoming. So exactly the kind of things that the skeptics would hate, right? Lots of non-evident alleged truths are being cited here. Um, so the thought is, look, Protagoras, you claim that there's no there's nothing more than perception that we do. There's no further authority. Yet you yourself are appealing to some beyond perceptual authority. You yourself are making judgments that are not perceptions because they have as their objects something beyond perception. And I should say, by the way, again, like I said in the Republic, it looks like an objects definition of these two different mental states. But I wanted to say there's an epistemic correlate. Same thing here. It looks like the thought is perception is of these special objects doxa is of these common objects. But I want to show again, yeah, the thought is in order to get to the common objects, you have to do some mental effort. Perception is passive. Merely saying wind hot, that's fine. But saying the wind really is hot, or even saying the wind is hot in that kind of uh, ontologically non-committal way that you do if you haven't thought of the appearance reality distinction, fine, perception can do that. But if you want to say the wind not only appears hot to me, but it really is hot for me, that requires this extra investigation and assent. And we do get good evidence from within the passage itself that to get to doxa, you need this kind of mental effort or calculation, legismos, like we saw in the Republic, passages 16 and 17. Um, in order to make assertions about the commons, the soul investigates the being of them in relation to one another, calculating in itself, again, from the root legismos, past and present things in relation to the future. This is one of the texts people have used in support of the objective reading. Um, because earlier he's talked about notions about what's going to be good for you in the future are objective. So I can agree the wind is hot 
for me now, maybe I'm the authority on that, but surely only a doctor who knows if I'm going to have a fever tomorrow can say the wind will be hot for me tomorrow. So these kind of calculations about the future bring in the idea of objective claims about objective existence. And finally, passage 17, whatever pathemata affections reach the soul through the body, so perceptual experiences, those are present as soon as we're born, so that's passive, that's easy. But calculations about these things regarding both being and benefit, so two important commons, scarcely arrive to those to whom they do arrive even after a long time through a lot of effort and education. So having doxai, making claims about how things really are, and in particular having true ones if there are such things, that requires a lot of effort. Again, it's not merely lifting your eyes from a shadow to the thing that casts it. I think it's not on the burn, like the burn view has it, merely putting the two things together. It's going beyond the appearances and making a claim about how they really are. Okay, so like I said, that's gonna be a highly contentious view of the Theotetus. What I haven't tried very hard yet to show how this is gonna handle the commons passage and, and all that, but I'll let, you, I'll let you do it in the question session if you want to. Um, I wanna, to sum up now and go back to the question that I mentioned, I raised in connection with the title. So I've argued that Plato has this appearance ascent account of doxa, and I've argued that this helps make sense of Plato, right? That it shows the Republic's theory to be not arbitrary or ill-motivated or messy, and it's shown there to be interesting consistency between the Republic and the Theotetus. It's shown the Theotetus's theory to fit this 184 to 7 passage fit with what comes later. Doxa is an answer to a question. It's also shown the Theotetus's theory to really respond to what led up to it, all the Protagorean relativism. So those are a lot of virtues of it. Uh, but I think it's going to leave open a question at the end of the day, do we want to say it's a theory of belief? And this might just be a boring question about what do you think belief is, right? So I mentioned Tamar Gendler as an example of someone who thinks belief is a pretty narrow category. There's lots of states that kind of look like beliefs but aren't. Other people will have a more liberal view where just entertaining a representation that plays a functional role in behavior, that counts as a belief, right? Or dispositionalist accounts. So maybe there are broader and narrower views of belief anyways. I want to say, even if we take the narrow view of belief that we get from someone like Gendler, I think Plato's view is going to be <laughs> even narrower than that. I think on the view we're getting from Plato, a doxa is something fairly rare. Lots of us go through most of our lives without ever bothering to form them. That's why most of us are in ekasia, particularly about value matters, right? Most of us probably have very few value beliefs, if we can't translate as beliefs. We just kind of passively go with how things appear to us. Um, so they're gonna be rare. They're gonna be confined to perceptibles, and they're gonna play a much smaller role in our theory of action than you might otherwise think that they do. Okay, thank you very much.